Let's try again. Good morning, church family. Okay, you can hear me over the fans, huh? Good. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 16 to 31. Whenever um, a student um, from Calvin Seminary, which is where I studied, prepares to be a pastor, uh, is about ready to graduate, you've got you've to go for a series of examinations. One of them is called the um, comp- Oral Comprehensive Theological Examination, which you sit with a, a, a group of four professors and they ask you questions. And uh, I heard a story once in prep for these exams about a student who was asked uh, in his exam, where's hell? And the student said, well, I believe, sir, that it's about 30 miles south of Jackson, Michigan. (laughs) And uh, the professor (laughs) didn't take too kindly to that answer. Uh, What he was looking for was a little bit more of uh, what's this place that the Bible talks about uh, that's sometimes called Hades, sometimes called hell. And we're going to open that up this morning. So it's serious um, conversation, but it's also one that takes place in a context. And the context is the conversation that Jesus has been having as he's been proclaiming good news about a kingdom of God, a kingdom that comes from heaven. But he's also been rejected. He's been pushed away. And so last week we heard him give a message through Pastor Gina about you can't love money more than you love God. You're going to love one or you're going to hate the other. You're going to serve one, despise the other. And today's sermon is really just a a continuation of what Jesus was saying Even though if we open our Bible, there's these section headers, really, Jesus didn't stop speaking. And so if you look at our text for today, it starts with the title, in mine at least, Additional Teachings. Well, sort of. Let's just forget that title, and he carries on. And um, let me just start at verse 13 and kind of pick up where we were last week and just read right through to 31. So Jesus says, You can't serve. Nobody can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and you'll love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone's forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. 
So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, A great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. God's word. I want you to look very quickly at verse 16 where um, Jesus says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And then at verse 31, if they don't listen to Moses who wrote the law, the the law refers to the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, and they were commonly called the law or the Torah, which means the way. So it's it's less about like legal rules and more about the way of God, the way to live in um, relationship with God, to worship him properly, to be in relationship with other human beings. So you have this law and prophets at the beginning, law and prophets at the end, you've got this declaration by Jesus that um, he's not here to abolish the law and prophets. They're not going to drop away, even though he's proclaiming good news about the kingdom of God. Actually, he's the fulfillment of them. And then you have this bit about adultery and marriage. What's that? That's just Jesus lifting up an example of the law and saying, um, this still pertains. And oh, by the way, I think he's highlighting one that a lot of them are um, breaking. So we know from the context that, that uh, many men, especially of that era, uh, found many different reasons for why they could divorce a wife they were displeased with and marry someone else. And they were sitting in judgment on God's law rather than underneath God's law. So all, that's all Jesus is doing there. I'm not going to preach about marriage and adultery in this sermon. Uh, the sermon's about the law and the prophets and about really about hearing God or being blind to hearing God. Okay. So, let me begin this way, by telling you uh, about something that happened last week, and that was real simple. During family devotions at our home, we were reading together one of the accounts from the Gospels that uh, talks about the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, and we, we read these words, and they jumped out at me. The words were, again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. It's Mark chapter 14. 
when we finished reading these words, I said to Ann and kids, um, the thing that's so shocking to me about this passage is that this high priest and these religious leaders firmly and sincerely believe that they know God. And so they're claiming to represent God. They're actually defending God. They believe that they are defending God against blasphemy. And so in the name of God, they kill God the Son. And they completely, firmly believe they're doing the will of God and defending His honor. Whoa! i got to tell you guys that one of the most sobering aspects of the Gospels, for me personally, is the storyline of the Pharisees. These are people... Now, I know that you didn't all grow grow up in church. But I did. These are people that grew up hearing and studying the Word of God. Even memorizing it. They attend worship weekly. They pray to the God of the Bible. They are religiously devout people. And so how is it that people who read and memorize large portions of the Bible, who believe they're worshiping the God of the Bible, who pray to the God of the Bible, are according to Jesus' words today, able to end up in Hades? That seems like a pretty important question. Hades is a word that means the realm of the dead, the netherworld, the underworld, a place of disembodied spirits. And as the text says, Hades is a place of torment. It's hell. Now, interpreters of the Bible aren't agreed about whether descriptions of agonizing and unquenchable fire are meant to be understood literally, like that there's a fire, there's heat, there's flames that don't go out but don't fully consume. That's literal. Or whether they're meant to be understood metaphorically as representing agonizing and unquenchable suffering. Either way, what's clear is that the Bible speaks about each human being undergoing evaluation after death, could you turn that fan either down or off because it's blown papers? Thanks. The Bible speaks clearly about each and every human being undergoing evaluation after death, about the finality of this judgment, and about a, a place of torment as one possible eternal destination. And so one question that we just need to acknowledge is going to be in the back of our hearts and our minds as we unpack that text this morning is how can a loving God consign anybody to eternal torment? How might those be consistent with each other? Well, bearing in mind that this text doesn't say all that there is to say about judgment, let's listen really closely to the context and to what's being said here. And I want to say first things first. When Abraham says, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in agony, he is not saying anyone who receives a lot of good things and comfort in this life will automatically have their fortunes reversed and receive torment in the afterlife. Nor is he saying anyone who receives a lot of hardship, suffering, difficulty, and bad things in this life are going to automatically receive comfort in the afterlife. That's not what he's saying. The central issue in this story is not what things people received in this life, but the condition of the human heart. 
And among other things, the Pharisees, and especially this nameless rich man, painfully demonstrate for us the human capacity for self-deception of the worst kind. It's not just that this guy's mistaken, it's that he's, his wrongness or his mistakenness is of, is of the kind that blinds. And so it removes all his ability to see and to hear the truth, even as he believes he knows the truth. And so regardless of whether we grew up in the church or whether we're new to the church, we ought to have our ears perked. If we're saying, I believe I know the truth, we ought to at least begin by saying, I'm also ability, able I'm not beyond the ability of being deceived. That's common to being human. This man fully believes he knows God, and yet truly his heart is somehow and in some way given over to another master, to money. And so his death is the occasion of his being fully and finally given over to that master. But here's the crazy thing and interesting thing. He doesn't get his eyes opened even when he dies. His deception carries on. So much so that this man, who's clearly in a place of judgment and torment, still thinks he's in charge. Notice that he's ordering Abraham around. Anybody in his condition would have recognized Abraham, father of the faith, If I think I'm in the faith, I think I'm one with Abraham, I should be where Abraham is. I'm not. He didn't say anything about being in a place where Abraham's not. He didn't say, there's no repentance. He's just telling Abraham what to do. Father Abraham, send Lazarus. In other words, that guy that was outside my gate that I treated like a dirt poor servant is still my servant. Send him to serve me. He thinks he's still in charge. He thinks the world still revolves around him. He's in Hades and he's still giving directions. And even though he uses the word repent, as he shamelessly argues with Abraham, he shows no signs of repentance himself. In fact, by telling Abraham to send Lazarus because, quote, when someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. What he's actually saying or insinuating is, hey, you didn't give me enough information. You didn't give my brothers enough information. We didn't have enough information. It's not fair. It's not fair. You didn't tell us enough in this life. You didn't communicate clearly enough, God, about what your expectations were. Can you see or can you hear that it's still not his fault? It's not his fault. He's shown no actual remorse No personal repentance, no acknowledgement of any sin against Lazarus, only a completely self-absorbed desire to escape torment. And what he shows us at this point, I think is really important. Even a fearful desire to escape judgment and punishment of hell is itself a poor and judgment-worthy motivation. Let me say that again. Fear of punishment as a primary motivation still leaves us with concern for self as primary. We're still the center of our world. When fear of punishment motivates repentance, our world still revolves around us and not around God. 
God of love, who's worthy of being loved and worshipped and adored and obeyed with all our hearts. This kind of self-absorption is what gets the rich man and sometimes us into this trouble in the first place. See, the problem for this guy isn't riches. It's not a problem for anybody to be rich. The Bible never says anywhere that being rich is a problem. Problem is when material things begin in any way, no matter how poor or rich we are, to drive decisions, to give significance. And so slowly, subtly perhaps, it's easy for any of us, no matter how rich or poor, to begin to look at our bank account balance or to look in our wallet and to begin to derive feelings of security and safety or of insecurity and fear from what we see or don't see. And so perhaps the rich man in our story didn't start out rich. Maybe he didn't start out trusting and loving his money. Maybe the economy shifted and he wasn't able to take in as much as he used to. And he began to feel that if he wasn't able to meet his financial goals or whatever that benchmark was that he set that made him feel like this is what I've got to have to feel good, then he started to feel like, well, I'll be in trouble if I don't have that. And so he just began to act a little bit more stingily. He began to hold on to a little bit more, to give away a little bit less. His heart began to shift. He had to protect Himself And see, in a process like that, his trust then would shift from God, the Father, who takes care of his children, to himself. And in that process of shifting, which doesn't happen radically, doesn't happen all at once, is subtle and it's slow and it's often unnoticed. Change takes place at the level of the heart. And as he's given over to that change and to the degree and the lack of trust that might begin to develop, slowly, I imagine, it becomes easier for him to gloss over certain passages of Scripture from the Law and the Prophets. Passages like this. Deuteronomy 15.7 If there's a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers, toward the poor and the needy in your land, or from the prophets, Jeremiah. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is this not what it means to know me? To know me, declares the Lord. Clearly, the heart of God is that the poor be generously cared for by those who've got resources or means. And so to know God is to express his love and his care to the poor and the needy. But this nameless rich man, for all of his Bible reading, church attending, 
praying to the God of the Bible has actually inadvertently taken himself out of relationship with the God of the Bible. He no longer knows him because he's not allowing him to shape his life. In fact, what he's done is he's allowed something else to become ultimate. Something else to be trusted, sought after, looked to for security and significance without even realizing it. C.S. Lewis says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God will say, Thy will be done. To those who choose to trust wholeheartedly, to love and serve the gracious living God as ultimate, God says, you may have your way. I will be your all in all. I will make myself your all in all in your life. That's heaven. That's the living, loving God wiping out everything and anything, including evil, pain, and suffering, that stand in the way of Him being all in all in our lives. That's heaven. To those who choose to trust in, love, and serve anything other than the gracious living God as ultimate, God eventually says, you may have your way. And he gives them over to whatever becomes ultimate or of ultimate significance to them. And here's the thing. They are then consumed by that thing. And it is hell. Because that thing, whatever has become the thing we look for, for significance and security and meaning at the level of the heart, not the lips. Notice this was a man who still professed God. It's the level of the heart. Whatever thing we look for that isn't God never gives the significance or the meaning that we desire. And like every addiction, it always leaves you coming back for more. It's ever-consuming and never-satisfying. This is torment. To be consumed by something other than God, but never satisfied, it makes us slaves. To be more and more given over to something, someone, to be made more and more into its image. I don't know if any of you have seen the um, movie The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I may have mentioned once or twice that it's one of my favorites. Uh, you, you might remember if you've seen it, the creature Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. He's consumed with finding and keeping the ring of power. And all throughout this story, he's seen chasing it and whispering, My precious! But in the, over the course of, of the, the whole story, you see him change from this hobbit named Smeagol into this half-dead, ghoulish, worm-like creature called Gollum, whose consumedness consumes him and really makes him less than hobbit or 
for our illustration, less than human. Hell, the complete absence of God and of all that is good, is to be ultimately consumed with anything other than the living God. It is to make something, someone, some anything more precious or significant to us at the level of the heart than God. And friends, lest we glaze over our eyes and say, well, that's not me and I'm not the rich man and point a finger at him too quickly, let's remember one more thing that C.S. Lewis says when he reflects on hell. Lewis says, in every one of us there is something growing up which over the course of eternity, will be hell unless nipped in the bud. What he means is this. We might recognize a small measure, small dose of lust or of bitterness, hatred, pride, critical anger, standing in judgment over others, inappropriate fear, dependence on human approval, we might look at those things and say, oh, it, it's a little of this, it's a little of that, it's not too serious. We may even notice that whatever that thing is, has gotten a little bit worse in us over 5 or 10 or 20 or 40 years. But Lewis says, what happens if God removes his gracious hand that's been holding that thing back from taking over us? And what if that thing, whatever it is, is released to keep on growing and growing within us to get worse and worse and worse forever. Forever is a lot longer than 5, 10, 20, and 40 years. What if God gave us over to our lust, our anger, our bitterness, our unforgiveness, our self-centeredness, Pride, criticism, judgment, hatred, desire for revenge. It would be hell. It would be hell. In every one of us, there's something growing up which over the course of eternity will be hell unless nipped in the bud. And these things that are growing up in us aren't to be um, pushed away as insignificant because they're all things that in one way or another are competing for primary allegiance in our hearts. They're competing for significance, for identity. They're competing with God for a place of worship. And like sin, they're not always so obvious, but subtle and sneaky. They move in slowly. They take ground slowly. And so it may be for one of us that our identity has shifted and it's now grounded in appearing right and correct. So much so that we subconsciously work to justify ourselves in all situations and slowly become unable to see or acknowledge wrongdoing, to express our own need for personal correction and grace. It might be for another one of us that our identity has become rooted in being and feeling comfortable. And so we arrange our lives to experience comfort. Who doesn't want comfort? It's a good thing, isn't it? But as we ex arrange our lives to experience comfort in all its varied forms, we slowly blind ourselves to the gracious call of God 
to lay down our lives for others. So we begin to read Scripture in a different way, a way that overlooks and minimizes Jesus' words about taking up a cross, suffering, seeking first His kingdom. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as He does. Jay read to us two weeks ago from 1 John. Slowly a shift can happen where something good becomes something primary, something shaping us. And so the question that we need to wrestle with this morning is where is our identity grounded? Where is, where is it that we get significance? What satisfies? What makes us feel good about ourselves and our lives? What are we chasing? Is it fun? Is it correctness? Is it comfort? Is it approval in relationships? Is it sexual fulfillment? Is it power? Is it control? Is it independence? Is it beauty? Is it all possibly good things, but things that if they shift into becoming primary, if they take the place, if they drive us not here, not here, but if they drive our lives here, more than knowing and loving God. They'll grow up. If they're not nipped, says Lewis, they'll grow up to be ever-consuming and never-satisfying. They will lead to and be hell. So, back to that question about how can a loving God consign anyone to torment? Well, uh, Tim Keller well-known pastor from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, he says this, and I agree with him. He says, contrary to many pictures, hell isn't something imposed by God in violence. In other words, he's, he's not waiting with his divine hand up, as it were, with a gavel, you know, waiting to slam it down and consign millions to a torment. John says, For God so loved, had such deep, overwhelmingly burdensome love for the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not be condemned, but will have life and life eternal. And He says, For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him stands condemned. Condemned already. Condemned because perhaps like the nameless rich man, they or we have let other things creep in and take over the place of ultimate significance in our hearts and our lives. And I want to tell you, um, I experienced that this past week in the life of somebody that I love who clearly professed Jesus as Lord and who at a certain point was not, this past week, was not able to affirm that profession. And it didn't happen radically and it didn't happen quickly. It happened slowly and subtly. 
at the level of the heart because things crept in and were allowed to be in that shouldn't have been there. Jesus comes to us to set us free from loving and trusting anything other than the living God to be our all in all. And so I want to close with a story from Martin Lowe-Jones that I think is, is really helpful. Jones um, told about being away from home one time and he had a friend stay at his house. And when he got home, his friend said to him, hey, um, your, well, your mail came, um, this bill came, and I opened the bill and I paid it for you. I sent it away. And Jones' comment was this. Until I heard from my friend which bill he paid, I really had no idea how to respond to him. Because if I got, he got a bill that was basically just postage due, then an appropriate response would just be to say, you know, shake his hand and say, thank you so much, like that was really generous of you. But if he got a bill in the mail that had um, 20 years of IRS back taxes and he paid that for me, I would fall at his feet with tears and profound thanksgiving. And so then he turns the question around and he says, how do we know how to respond to Jesus' suffering on the cross for us? He says, if we don't understand hell, if we don't believe in hell, Unless we know what it is that Jesus offers to rescue us from, we'll never know how to respond appropriately. And so we look again to the cross and we remember that on the cross, Jesus spoke out these words. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? That He did, as the song said that we sing, the Father's face was turned away, that he experienced the fullness of the removal of God and all of his goodness. He became sin for us. Jesus experiences the devastation of total abandonment from the Father, of hell. So that we may live not as slaves to anything but as free children, free to love, free to serve, free to worship with all our hearts. Only let nothing, let nothing get in the way. The irony of our text for today is that while Abraham in effect says, you know what, no more warnings are coming for your family because they've already received revelation, God has spoken, and they've not listened We the readers and we the hearers get the warning that they're being denied. And so we hear that there is judgment, that it's real. We hear that that judgment's final. We hear that the fear of judgment isn't a worthy motivation for seeking escape because it doesn't turn us to God, only turns us inward on ourselves. We hear that Jesus came to rescue us from that judgment. We hear that there needs to be no fear for those whose lives exhibit a real relationship with with God, one of love and of trust and of obedience to what he's revealed in Scripture. But we also hear that none of us is immune to self-deception. We're not immune from looking to other things, looking longer than we should, and looking to them to give identity and significance and slowly becoming blinded to seeing these things. And so what I want to, as primary, 
And so how I want to end is very simply by asking God's Spirit to search our hearts and to just bubble up anything that might be competing with Him. And then joyfully, after we confess those, joyfully to receive communion and afresh the good news of who we are as His children. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you that you do not leave us on the path that we ourselves were headed, that you come to us with this offer to remove any and every allegiance that would lead to slavery and instead to make us gloriously free as your children. Now, Lord, would you shine your light by your Holy Spirit and speak specifically to us about things or people or places in our lives where we are being tempted in any way to look to anything other than you and to trust that thing more than you or to serve that thing or that person or that relationship more than you. Speak, O Lord.